0: Several years ago, in 2008 precisely, IHI put a big toe in a big body of water and started to talk about the triple aim, better individual experience of care, better health for populations and at lower per capita costs. Now, frameworks to guide the transformation of health care aren't a new phenomenon, but the triple aim has taken hold in a number of unique and unprecedented ways. It simultaneously grabbed the imagination of quality improvers, whole systems, whole counties, whole countries, and found traction among payers, providers, patients, and policymakers. The Triple Aim has provided a means for the worlds of health and healthcare to get into each other's territory in the best disruptive sense, and nothing finally compares to the courage it's taken for hundreds and hundreds of organizations to just get down to work to see how they could turn the Triple Aim framework into new ways of doing things, offering better care to patients and better health to communities, even if all the stars, like Payment, weren't and aren't still aligned. So what's helped these efforts progress? What's held some back? That's our topic on this edition of WIHI. And welcome to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We're offered uh, bi-weekly, and also you can find us later on IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan, and I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. Earlier this month, Milbank Quarterly published what the IHI Triple Aim team has learned from its engagement with some 141 organizations over the past seven years, no small feat. The authors are here. They are eager to share and engage with you, so we're going to get right to introductions. But first, here's IHI's John Gothier with some reminders about how to make the most of your time with us today on WIHI. John.
1: All right. Thanks, Madge. Just a few items to point out to help everybody make the most of today's program. On the right of the screen is our chat window, and if you've tuned into WIHI before, you know about the great conversation that takes place in the chat. It's also where you can ask our panelists your questions, so make sure that your questions and comments are directed to all participants when Madge opens up the floor to questions. This allows our panelists and your colleagues on the WebEx to see all questions and comments being shared. Now, there are a few ways that people have connected to WIHI today. If you are logged onto WIHI, streaming audio, coming through speakers of your headphones, you'll see a box on the top right-hand corner labeled audio broadcast. If you're on a less reliable internet connection today, we recommend calling in on the phone. If you experience any audio issues, please send a quick message to the host in the chat. A simple solution to any of those hiccups may be to pause the WebEx audio player and then press play. If that persists, please let the folks at IHI Customer Service know. We have their number on the screen as we speak. Also, if you're hoping to get your hands on today's slides, I'll provide a direct download link in the chat. Tomorrow, they'll be posted at our archive at IHI.org slash along with today's chat and other helpful articles, and the resources mentioned by our guests. You can also email info at IHI.org, and they will send them your way. And finally, we're always looking for ways to improve the listener experience here on WIHI, and we need your help for that. Please take some time after the program to fill out our quick survey and let us know what we've done. Back to you, Madge.
0: All right, thanks so much, John. Don't forget, folks, if you like to tweet, include at the IHI in your tweets. That way we can bring others into the conversation. Uh, So we have four authors with us today, and there are four authors of the piece, so that's pretty good, pretty good track record. Two people are here in the studio with me, Ninyan Lewis is an executive director at IHI and currently leads IHI's Triple Aim for Populations focus area, encompassing the Triple Aim, population health, population management, primary care, and community-wide improvement efforts. Welcome, Ninyan. Great to be here, Madge. Trissa Torres is at her side. She's a senior vice president at IHI with responsibilities for the pursuit of the IHI triple aim, the transformation of primary care, the creation of systems to ensure reliable care transitions, and engaging community partners to improve the health of populations and communities. Trissa is a preventive medicine physician by training. We're going to hear some about that today as well. Welcome, Trissa. Hello, everyone. On the phone, we have Kevin Nolan, a statistician and consultant at Associates in Process Improvement and a senior fellow at IHI. Since 1986, Kevin has focused on developing methods to help manufacturing, healthcare, and service organizations accelerate their rate of improvement. Hi, Kevin. This is your chance to call in, say, I'm here. Kevin has to take himself on off mute, but I know he's there. Okay, and now we also have John Whittington on the phone. John is uh, IHI's lead faculty for the Triple Aim. He brings more than 30 years of experience in medicine, population health, and patient safety. He previously served as the medical director of knowledge management and patient safety officer for the OSF Healthcare System in Peoria, Illinois. Welcome, John.
2: Well, thanks, Madge
0: great that you're here. All right, John, we are going to lead off with you, and I'm just going to say it once, and if anybody wants to say anything during the chat, uh, this is an interesting day for our discussion on the Triple Aim because of today's uh, court decision on subsidies in the Affordable Care Act, and uh, always something, uh, some additional context in terms of the stability or not of the policy environment. So, John, there's a lot of activity in health care all across the U.S. right now, Uh, that, in word at least, associates itself with the Triple Aim, whether the deeds always match the rhetoric. Something has happened the past seven years. So it's your job in these brief five minutes to give some character to the trajectory of the Triple Aim since 2008, and uh, how come it's become so relevant? Thanks, John.
2: Well, thanks, Madge. Thanks for the opportunity to be on WIHI today. Um, You know, in answer to that question, I got a few I have a few thoughts one aspect of it is that um, we've been we've been very fortunate uh, it's uh, we've been fortunate in that when the idea was first initiated and we first shared it um, it was in an environment at that moment in time that didn't have the level of support that we do today but we had the good fortune of working with some far-sighted leaders in health systems and, and organizations that Bought into the idea of the triple aim. And I, and I guess, you know, I mean, the big, uh, the big moment for us, or the, I guess, the thing that's really, uh, been, uh, surprising to us, maybe that's the way to characterize it, has been the terrific explosion of the triple aim around, around the world, really in the developed world. It's really caught on. And, you know, you have to reflect on that and say, why do you think that actually happened? And I think there's several things that happened. One, uh, people have been working on this concept before we, quote, labeled the triple aim. So it's not as if we invented the triple aim. We might have coined it, but others were working on it before us. And I think it helped organize. I think that was the deal. It it started getting people focused on populations and helped organize, uh, their thinking in regards to this. So I think that was, I think that was an important aspect. Just the timing of it, the way it helped organize people. And then, you know, we've had the good fortune of Policy changes, both at the state level and the federal level, that came along as we were doing this work that have actually helped support this type of work all along and actually help people realize how they could actually even make a business case. Or maybe another way I like to say it is how they can make a sustainable case for working on the triple So, you know, it was the good fortune for us to actually have introduced it at the time we did. There were some changes going on, and I think those combinations and the way it held people together, I think was really um, helpful. You know, one thing I want to do is um, talk about the definition of the AAA because I'm going to take my moment of my, my moments here just to say it still is confused today. I still pe- see people botch the definition, so let me just say it, and I think Kevin will reinforce it. But you know, when we talk about improving the health of populations, we're talking about high-level outcomes, the big-ticket items health status, life expectancy, infant mortality, disease prevalence, whatever you want, these big ticket items, that's what we're saying, how do we actually make a difference there? And it's not just the mean that we're talking about, we're also thinking about disparities. Uh, the, the people at the margins of society, how do we improve that? So anyways, that's health. People, people get that one, probably the experience one is where I see it botched the most, because it's the experience of care, it's not just satisfaction, it deals with the issues around uh, quality and safety and access, all those issues. So keep experience in your mind when you think about it. And lastly, it's the per capita cost. You know, um, so that's my point about keep, them, keep the definition uh, in mind as we do this. Because, again, I still see it, what I would say, bots these days. One thing I want to say is, and they've got to slide up, I, this is my moment to give thanks I want to thank the 141 organizations who worked with us over the many years. They weren't all at the same time, but without them, without them, we do not make the progress we make. I want to make that clear. This They made it happen for us. We worked with them. They helped us succeed, and that has been a terrific thing. And then I also want to thank the great faculty. I'm sure many of them are on the call today. We had a stellar crew who worked with us, all-stars, and they committed this. This was a passion for them, thanks to them. And then lastly, IHI, just for hanging in there with us. You know, I hope it's clear from the article if you've read it. And if you haven't, I, I recommend it. Um, yeah, obviously I would, but, but I do recommend it. I think it's helpful. But, yeah, I guess I'd say this for you. Don't, when you read the article, I hope it's clear that it is not a roadmap. It's more like we've got a compass, maybe a flashlight, and a few road markers along the way. We still have a whole lot more to learn on this work, but I think we have at least a little bit more um, guidance than when we started, and we tried to share that as best we can. I'm going to transition here in a moment to my other colleagues, and as I do that, what they're going to share about is really the, the main points of the article, which are on these three guiding principles. Create the great the right foundation for this work. Figure out how to manage services at scale, which is about a population, how to understand And they're going to talk about this. And again, we go I add infinitum item on the article with lots of examples. And thirdly, establish a learning system. Uh, another way to say this. sometimes people, when we say learning system, I can tell you another way to say it. Think of a strategic guidance system. Think of a system that's going to help you implement your work. This is very complex work. With that, Madge, I'll turn it back to you.
0: All right. Thanks so much, John, for kicking this off and uh, look forward to hearing from you more in the hour, um, particularly when we get to Q&A and et cetera. All right. I'm going to turn to Nian right now. Nian and Kevin, they're going to kind of take us through these guiding principles uh, that are sort of the main points that pop out from the article that are then um, expanded upon uh, through the piece. So there's a really nice logic to the article uh, that you can kind of keep coming back to some of those main themes. So one thing I thought I would just ask Nian as you get started, I'm thinking that a lot of teams had to figure this stuff out by trial and error, um, by bumping along. Um, and maybe not like bumper cars, but maybe so, as did the team itself in terms of what is it that's really maybe knitting together the things that work well. So with that, let's start off with, uh, I guess, that first one. Go ahead. Yeah.
3: So thanks, Madge. You're actually absolutely right. Um, we like to say that the world always looks better in PowerPoint. So we might be walking through a few slides, and they seem descriptive and prescriptive, but this really was the challenges and the successes of those 141 organizations and coalitions. So um, the first piece of learning of those guiding, those three guiding principles for results on the Triple Aim is building, first building that foundational setup for population management. And that ultimately comes down to three seemingly simple but absolutely paramount things, um, and the first is is should be the number one thing that you work on as soon as you're taking on the triple aim, and that's ultimately choosing a relevant population for improved health care and lowered cost. Everything else flows from your identification of the population that you hold yourself accountable for for all three dimensions of the triple aim. Um, where might your levers be to actually work on that population? And and with the organizations that we worked with, um, two different types of populations um, came to be. Um, there's some healthcare organizations that we're working with enrolled populations, those discrete populations. They might be paying for the care, or providing the care. You can get your arms around that population. You can enumerate that population. Usually that might be patients of a particular health system or all those that call Dr. Smith their doctor. It uh, could be employees of an organization. It could be members of a health plan or members enrolled in an ACO. Um, there are a set of particular challenges um, that come from taking on a, an enrolled population. And then conversely, there are geographically bound populations, those community wide populations. And that could be down to a neighborhood municipality level, county, state, federal, um, really being able to look geographically at your population and that comes with a whole host of different challenges and considerations. Once you've identified your population for whom you get up in the morning to serve, then you need to think about what are the governance and leadership structures we need to put in place to really think about really, really intimately understanding the needs of this population and then being able to meet those needs in a way that really meets that population where they're at, at the individual level, um, really acting with the individual to learn for the population, as well as, as being able to think about it over time. Um, And really maximize on the assets of that population. And this is a for for those that were working on the triple aim, this was was a really key point was the um, identification of a leadership and governance structure. For those working with an enrolled population, this should really be your C suite level leadership. This needs to be strategic at the highest level of your organization in order for this to be something that you're really setting yourself up for for the long haul. And in a community, it should be an existing governance structure, hopefully, that's already going on within the community that's taking on community-wide health, experience of care, or cost issues. Um, And especially at the community level, this got pretty hairy at times. Um, These are competitive marketplaces. Um, There are often times where inside the room, you're working on the triple aim, and outside, you're actually pretty actively trying to put each other out of business, competing um, in a mindful way in the marketplace. And this goes beyond doing deals. Um, And that was some some feedback we got from healthcare system CEOs that this is something brand new. It's a different mental muscle. This isn't a, a joint data use agreement. It's not CEOs in a, in a county coming together and jointly purchasing a helicopter service that benefits all the health systems, it's beyond that. This is something where no one person in the room, no one health system, no one healthcare organization has the answer, um, but it's, it's a, the whole concept of quote unquote learning your way into this was Be- brand
0: new. So before you talk about the third piece, I just want to ask you, is there a good example of maybe in the governance uh, area of something that worked well? Um, One or two examples, maybe.
3: Yeah. Um, So in one of the communities that we worked with, um, the... came from um, visionary healthcare system CEOs, and when we asked them, is there a current governance structure that is really well-respected in the region that's taking on health, and they said, um, there are a few, but we really want this to get people from all different sectors, considering that it's not just community health, it's all dimensions of the triple A. And so they actually appealed to a very well-respected business coalition who had primarily took, taken on things that were not health. They had actually made a conscious decision not to work on health because they knew that there were other coalitions in the region working on it already. And they were working on things like government efficiency and public safety and economic development. And those healthcare leaders went to that business coalition and said, would you expand your mission to include health? And the, the business leaders who were all at the CEO level said, actually, this makes strategic sense for us. And it made strategic sense for them because they were talking about the A. Um, And they were able to build out a governance structure that was an offshoot of that Um, incredibly well respected in the region. And they were able to get a lot more traction than trying to build something from the ground up. If you're building a new coalition from the ground up, expect to take about two or three years just to build that kind of collaboration infrastructure because this is people work. Um, And so and that leads us into the third, um, which some people think might be the most fluffy, but it is it is the one that makes or breaks it, and it's articulating a purpose that will hold your stakeholders together. Why do you want to work on the tripling for this population? And just having that conversation begins to pull out self-interest and getting real about that self-interest and being able to find some common ground of what about this population keeps us all together. And that, that articulation of the purpose is not a mission or a vision statement, it is a why statement. And so that, because this is the kind of work that takes longer than anyone has patience for. And so there has to be a purpose statement that's so crucial to everyone that they're willing to come back again and again and again and willing to reallocate time and resources and energy to this work. And it could be a budget imperative where you need to take out millions of dollars from your healthcare organization's operating budget in a very short amount of time. And you can't do that at the expense of the health of the population or the quality of the care and the patient experience. Or it could be um, for the better good of the community. We saw some communities that that saw the recession hit them very hard and businesses leave and young families go away to college and they do not come back and they that was a community imperative and whether it's something that's totally making business sense and that's the imperative or it's for the community good both are important almost equally important the key is just to have it down on paper now some people if we were to, to take a page from some that really struggled through it don't sit in the conference room for a year trying to work out a purpose statement you're gonna have to start before you're ready but being able to really articulate that articulate that over time in a way that you're able to bring new stakeholders to the table and then keep those people at the table over time is
0: really important makes me think that at some point, maybe this is on the website somewhere, it would be interesting to see some of these purpose statements uh, that emerge to the extent, uh, and maybe anybody who's uh, on the call today uh, who's within this realm here, um, if, if you have something, an example, that would be great. Yeah, yeah.
3: Um, the Pueblo M Council yeah. in Colorado, we have a, a purpose statement in the article from them, right. um, and it's great. a quote from them, and it is a rock-solid purpose statement, okay. and it has really kept, if you talk to Matt Guy, the head of the P- Pueblo Triple M Council, it has really kept his stakeholders at this work and coming to the coming to the meetings, investing the time, allocating the resources for five years. Okay. And when you don't have a stakeholder walk away in a five year time, it's that's huge. We should pay attention to those things. Um, I think we should also pay attention to those that have really struggled in these areas. So um, some of the biggest ways that people have struggled in the foundational setup is one is it's not they say it's strategic but it's not actually strategic we tend to lean in and get a little concerned when someone says to us we're working on a triple aim project because that tells us that it might just be one of many projects and this should be your organization's or your coalition's strategy and your project should fall within that strategy so it really does need to be strategic at the at the highest levels of your organization additionally um, people really struggle with those governance structures, finding the right leaders in the right spots who are willing to to invest in this over time um, and really put the energy in. Um, and then lots of people struggle with those that didn't have a purpose statement. Their their effort really fizzled within a year to 18 months. It was very it was very tough for them to hang in there, and it's because they couldn't articulate why the stri- the AAA is strategic for them. But if you can find that, um, it, it really does push the work forward in a meaningful way.
0: Okay, thank you very much, Ninon. really appreciate it, and yeah, maybe we'll look for some of the purpose statements in the article itself, uh, Chris and others, uh, on today's program, and maybe we'll see if we can round up a few more and throw them on a slide and post it to uh, the archive page. We can definitely do that. Yeah, so thanks, Nignon. Uh All right, Kevin, uh, Nolan, going to turn to you. You're going to talk about uh, work with a defined uh, population. Um, uh, and uh, the other two principles that we've got here. Uh, I would imagine here, too, uh, that it's, it's, this is a huge been a huge learning curve, uh, getting to these definitions of populations, starting where folks could and also going from small to big and focus, focus, uh, before you, you get too ahead of yourself. So thanks, Kevin, for walking us through the other uh, two main principles.
4: Okay, thanks, Matt. Um, yeah, I think uh, this idea of focusing is important, but I would say that the triple aim work is, uh, when you think about focus, focusing, is, is really not any different than any other complex uh, initiative where we would uh, give advice to take a sequential approach to improvement. I think the key in the triple aim was that uh, we really worked at assisting sites with a path forward to actually do that? So I think this question or this idea of focusing is a nice sort of segue into the second and third components, which I'd like to you know talk about briefly here. Uh, the slides will give uh, sort of an overview of the sections from the article. What I'd like to do is just very quickly give a, a short overview of some of the ideas in each of those sections. So. Uh, we learned from the, the, many of the sites with whom we worked over this last seven years that uh, Foundation for Population Management was built. Uh, execution of the work to pursue the AAA and really involved uh, managing services at scale for a population. I'm gonna to try to talk a little bit about that. So we found organizations uh, broadening their view of services uh, beyond those just available in the healthcare delivery uh, system to many other services that might benefit a particular population. So as John had mentioned, the involvement of social services, public health, other community-based services that best met the needs of those they served. Uh, To design and manage services successfully, site's first segment, and I think this is an important first step about focusing their overall population into subpopulations with similar needs. The overall overall population, if you think about it, could first be divided, say, into groups from healthy to those with complex needs by age or any other groupings that made sense for your particular population. We have an example in the article from Alberta Health Services, the Edmonton Zone in Alberta, Canada. Uh, They use a blend of methods to segment their complex needs population even further. Uh, including reviewing past utilization and cost data, engaging frontline providers to gather qualitative information, uh, talking directly to individual patients. And their analysis resulted in segmenting patients with complex needs into six groups, and I'll just run through these real quickly here is try morbid adults, that is adults with chronic illness and issues with mental health and substance abuse. Second was frail older adults. The third was young adults with addiction and mental health concerns. The fourth was child, childbearing women. The fifth with high needs children. And the sixth was complex infants and children. So imagine when you ask about focusing, I think again, we learned from that population segmentation is a key initial step, but, but you got to take it from there. So once sites identified subpopulations, the they looked at specific needs and assets of that population. And from that, build a portfolio of projects that, that address those specific needs. Uh, one thing, and I think a very important thing that we learned was that no single project by itself, at least we haven't found one, can accomplish the Triple Aim for a population. And it does take a set of projects that address all three dimensions of the Triple Aim and the different needs in the population. So you could think about, when you go back and think about the Alberta Health Services uh, example there with those six groups. Uh, each of those have different needs, uh, and so you have to think about, you know, what are the different projects that, that might be set up to focus on, uh, focus on those needs. Uh, we found that many organizations and communities had existing services, which was very interesting, but they really weren't integrated. Uh, into the into the system or available at, a, at the necessary scale, but sites did along the way learn from individual why why certain services uh, didn't have a meaningful impact, and they did work to redesign existing services or develop new approaches that were more likely uh, to succeed. The uh, it is it is that that fifth bullet there is really important. The idea of thinking about uh, early on about moving from testing the delivery of services. In a small group to delivering those services efficiently at full scale to all individuals in the population who would benefit from them. So it's very important to think early on about what full scale is for these services that you're developing for a population. And to help people move from, as you say, from small to big, we recommended that sites think about increasing the scale of their testing in five pole increments, just as a sort of uh, way of getting at trying to scale up. Start with five patients, then twenty-five, and one twenty-five, and, and and so forth. Uh, we found this enabled teams to discover and address previously unknown system constraints at each level and spot opportunities for efficiency. So in the article, we talk about, for example, organizations creating a care plan for say five individuals and then beginning to scale it up uh, based on what was learned. Again, starting small before going uh, before going big. Uh, the last bullet there is really about the, about the inter- integrator. We believe that really what we've learned, uh, together with the sites we work with, that developing a portfolio of projects to deliver services at scale for a population really requires an integrator to coordinate the efforts of these different entities working together to improve outcomes. Uh, we include an example in the article from Cincinnati Children. Uh, engaging with local fire department and emergency medical services as key partners to help them work on a community effort to reduce childhood injury. So uh, that integrator is also essential to move on to a third core component that we included in the article, which was developing a learning system for population management. Uh, this is really focused on building a system to, de- to, uh, to drive, I would say, and sustain the work over time, uh, a comprehensive learning system, which I think everybody that's on the line is always thinking about how can we build together a system of learning. It does foster intentional testing and learning and provide these feedback loops to compare performance with, with uh, specific aims and measures for the population. And as it says on the slide, we believe it starts with these population outcome measures for the triple aim goals of health, experience of care, and per capita cost to help organizations and communities about evaluate their progress over time. Uh, there's a reference at the bottom to a white paper that we put together based on uh, Working with others on developing these measures, as well as working with all the sites that were involved in the Triple Aim, and and you know we recommend people take a look at that look at that if they're thinking about what measures can I develop for each of the three dimensions of the Triple Aim. And so the white white paper contains an overview of uh, suggested Triple Aim measures and the frameworks that we use to develop them, and 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 obviously a a good number of uh, of examples. Uh, as a foundation, though, successful sites really began and then refined a theory about how they would achieve the triple aim. So each organization, each site, each community have to really sit down with their stakeholders and think about this. So in the article, we include an example from Ch- uh, St. Charles Health System in Bend, Oregon. If they tried to achieve the triple aim, they would need to intervene in five key areas, integrated data support, enhanced primary care, care coordination for populations, Partnerships with providers and partnerships with the community. So they came up with a driver diagram that laid out how they might proceed in those five areas. Uh, as we proceed down here, because this work is complex, we encourage sites to learn their way into the design of new services, which is extremely important to use iterative testing, uh, before moving to full scale. So we're all familiar, familiar with sequ- sequential plan, new study act cycle, So that really became the approach that we recommended uh, everyone that worked with us to use as they uh, tested and scaled up. We, uh, we need to always remember though that work on the triple aim is directed to what is best for an individual in the population. So that's really important. So that key mantra that we have in there, act with the individual, learn for the population, is, is something we, we use continuously. So acting on what is best for the individual helps identify generalizable principles that can form the work for meeting the needs of the broader population. So this connects back to learning about what services we really need to develop for the population. And then finally, and Mignana has gone through the idea of leaders, but leaders are needed to oversee and manage a aim portfolio with a really a structured approach to that oversight. Sites that were doing that, we found, actually made better headway. So, so let me just finish, Matt, here by emphasizing that to manage services for a population is important to understand the needs and access of the population before starting in with the, with the design of the services, and that I would say that knowledge of quality improvement is needed to test and you learn your way to full scale and to develop a really solid and good uh, learning system.
0: Thank you so much, Kevin. And uh, as always on WIHI, you folks know I ask people to <laughs> convey quite a bit in a short amount of time, really do invite you uh to look at the article. Um, Every quarter when Milbank publishes, they choose one article to make freely available. They chose this one as exceedingly important uh, because learning from this is really key to what's gonna come next. And uh, Trissa Torres is also gonna help us think about that a a little bit before we go to chat. So first, Trissa, you were part of a health system uh, as some of uh, this uh, AAA work got underway. And you were also yourself uh, kind of in the thick of it with some new models and pilots. So we're interested if you can reflect on that, uh, sort of how it looked from that end in terms of trying to redesign those new things. Uh, now you're here of course at IHI and maybe you can give us some sense of sort of what's sort of frontier kind of things.
5: Absolutely so uh, yeah prior to IHI I was at Genesis Health System in Flint Michigan and we were doing Triple Aim for I would say almost 20 years ago before we even called it Triple Aim of course and and I just kind of wanted to share some of the challenges um, that we learned along that longitudinal pathway. one of the things that, that we did, as we started marching through this, is we actually were working to learn with several populations at the same time. So we were learning on a population of uninsured patients, which hopefully now is much smaller than it ever was back then. Um, we were also working on our own employees, uh, and we were also working with a group of patients who were patients of our primary care providers covered by managed care contracts. And then over time, we also joined the Pioneer ACO. So we were, we were working and learning through multiple populations at the same time. And when we originally started, which I think is also still very relevant today, we chose populations where there wasn't a direct disincentive to lower costs. Because when I see other organizations start to do this work and if, if it's not in their business advantage to lower costs, healthcare costs, then it makes this work really, really hard. So we chose several populations where it wasn't disadvantaged uh, to lower costs, and then we started to work and learn on what does it take to, to really strive after the triple aim for those populations. Some of the things we learned um, on those different populations were each one had actually a different a group of stakeholders and a different governance structure. And Ninyan talked about how important that piece is and it is absolutely important. And and also those governance structures and leadership changed over time. And, and again, that's something we even see today. You know, you start with a group of stakeholders who are really committed to this triple aim, but some people move so whether they leave the organization or leave the community and champions change. So constantly revisiting that commitment to that purpose and that aim, like Ninyan talked about, was so so crucial um, and continuing to bring more and more stakeholders into the fold really helped keep us going. Another thing that we found very challenging, and again, I see as we work with um, ACOs and other organizations and communities around the country now, I, I continue to see as a challenge is data sources were so complex. And we often found that with the different populations we were working with, we couldn't necessarily get system level metrics on all three aims. So for some of the populations, it was easy to get data on cost and on care, but it was harder to get data on the health of that population. Or for other populations, we could get data on health and care, but it was harder to get cost data. So it wasn't always easy to get the information we needed. Um, but we still found that we could weave these learnings together to really still test our theory. And we did learn that there were surprisingly, a number of interventions and outcomes that were actually quite similar across these diverse populations. So, you know, one, just to give an example, one of the specific interventions that, that we tested in multiple populations was a health navigator approach, which was an extension of a primary care practice, but it really engaged people in their own self-management. And we found that to be very effective across all these different um, populations. So, So, even though there were challenges in in governance and structure and infrastructure, challenges in in how we gathered and and used that data, we also found lots and lots of synergies and really were able to learn rapidly over time, um, although, continue to learn over the long-term. I mean, this is a long-term commitment, as others have also said, um, and, and really have, have progressed. So um, proud of the work that we did at Genesis, proud of what Genesis continues to do, um, but also really seeing many of those same themes as we look forward. So um, one of the things I think about as we look forward is how important it is for health systems organizations and communities to really look at the new payment systems that are coming towards us as an opportunity. This is a chance to leverage these new payment changes to make changes in our care delivery and our overall delivery model to really drive towards these Triple Aim outcomes. In the past, our payments have gotten in the way. We paid for sick sick care and we could only deliver sick care. This opens up the door for us to deliver care and deliver on health as a promise while we drive down costs and improve care. So really looking at those payment systems as an opportunity. A couple more points I think about as we look forward. One, and I think that Kevin pointed this out as well, is that we can never lose sight of the patient as an asset. And as we think through designing new care models and always try to think of it from the perspective of the patient, I think it's going to really help us establish new designs that are going to matter and are going to be meaningful and are going to be effective. And, and just to give one example of that, uh, one of my children who has a uh, chronic disease um, and has to interact with the healthcare system frequently, he often reminds me of something that he's he's named red tape overdose, uh, and that's when it takes way too many steps um, to get something accomplished within the healthcare system that seems to him as a patient should be easy and straightforward for him to take care of his own disease. So when so when we leverage that patient perspective as we go to redesign, I think that we're going to get there faster. They're an asset that can really help us both in terms of changing what we do, but also in terms of leveraging everything they have to contribute to their own health and their own health care. And Lastly, uh, I want to say make sure that we always value the assets in the community. And I think more and more, as we're able to take advantage of these new payment models, it also allows us to get outside our own walls and say we all are going to benefit from improved health, improved care, and lower costs. And we can start partnering in ways that we've never partnered before with people across the community to drive for these triple this triple aim. And as John pointed out. I wanted to also again say that HALSO has to include eliminating equity, um,
0: inequity, eliminating inequity.
5: Whoa! Yeah. Did that
0: come out wrong? <laughs> I see, knew. testing you, eliminating inequity. I knew what you meant. <laughs> I just thought, you got it, eliminating inequity, and I think that's that's very very important. It's just great. Thank you so much, Trista. All right, we've laid out a lot. And uh, thanks for your patience as we kind of went through some stuff Um, seven years in the making. So, uh, you know, we've got to figure out different distilled ways to talk about it. John, quickly remind people how to use that chat.
1: Yeah, uh, when you're chatting into your questions and comments at, in the WebEx chat to the right, uh, make sure that you address it to all participants in the send-to bar. That's all participants in the send-to bar. All right, thanks a lot, John.
0: All right, Jen is here. Uh, you know, people have been making some comments, and thank you, John Whittington, also for uh, answering some stuff on chat so far. Jen is wondering about triangulating some of the data to facilitate understanding, and she's got some various uh, uh, sort of um, what what she means by that. John Whittington, why don't I fly this back yeah, to you? I'd love
5: to
0: go right for it. There you go.
2: Yep. Well, yes, and, and hello, Jen. Um, Jen. Jen has worked with the Canadian Health um, Foundation. I may have botched that, but in turn, and, and they have been a really strong partner with IHI, and we've had a lot of wonderful Canadian sites working with us for many years, so I want to put a plug in for those teams. Um, that question's a really good question, and in fact, we've worked on this. It says uh, triangulating some of the data to facilitate understanding the EG on cost, using some experience data to help us predictors. Um, in the Triple Aim, as we went along, we actually worked on various populations. One of the populations that we continue to work on is the high risk, high cost, and that's probably the one we've concentrated on the most in using uh, financial data. And using the experience of individuals, and using the clinicians' experience, in developing multiple ways of actually identifying complex patients who are in need of unique services. So we've done a lot of work on the, I'll say, the five percent who cost fifty percent, trying to identify those individuals. And it's still a work in progress. And I'm going to make one comment. I know Jen knows this. So, and and people often fall in love, and and this is not. People often think, well, what we need is just the IT system. And I know Jen doesn't, uh, she knows this better, and she knows as well that what we're looking for is both a combination of tools that help us identify high-risk individuals and then processes and services and community benefits and all that that actually works together for helping individuals. That whenever we work on this stuff, we know it's not just one thing versus another. I mean, but again, that was a good question. And one of the ways we've worked on it is that. And I would say, too, she brings up the PAM, and that's a very good one. As we go along, we're finding more and more tools that we can actually use as predictors uh, for this. And, it, and lastly, I'll stop there. It brings up the whole idea of, you know, this is all about populations. And now we're starting to think about populations and how to find individuals and, and uh, 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 subpopulations that are important to us. Back to you, Madge. Madge.
0: Okay, thanks a lot, uh, John, and uh, thank you, Trissa. Patient activation me- measure, excuse me, Pam. Thanks, John. Trissa um, Trissa's going to address a question also uh, from I think that was Amy. I just want to. Oh, I'm sorry, Tony. Uh, about choosing a population where there is not a disincentive to lower costs. Uh, to explain that a little bit more.
5: Sure, thanks, Tony. Um, so, a couple of examples of that. So when we started at Genesis. When coming from the perspective of a health system, when we were being paid fee for service, then lowering ER admissions or admissions to the hospital in general meant a direct hit to our bottom line. Now, where it was, in, where it was advantageous to lower that was where we weren't getting paid for that. So for example, our uninsured patients we were not getting any money anytime we admitted them to the emergency room. Um, so we could learn how can we help these people who tended to be marginalized and sick and and needed additional access to care. How could we help improve their care, health, and uh, outcomes while also lowering emergency room and um, admissions to the hospital without it actually being um, disadvantageous to our our bottom line as a hospital business. Now, now that was you know that was the uninsured. Population um, years ago, but similarly now, when we see uh, organizations working in say risk contracts and and taking shared savings, shared risks or accountable care type of models, then the idea is that by lowering total costs of care and being able to share in those savings, then that um, changes the financial incentive so so that you want to provide the best care at the lowest cost as opposed to um, providing more services in order to then meet your fiscal requirements. Okay, thanks very much.
0: Um, I'm going to ask, Kevin, uh, let me not put you on the spot here, but uh, since we're on the theme a little bit about costs and money, um, I, there, is, there are some examples within the article, but what would you say right now or is kind of some of the evidence around the ability to lower costs and sort of how much that is uh, starting to manifest itself in in different ways
4: uh, well Matt, i would I would say I think the work we're doing now again coming back to segmenting the population working with you know a lot of organizations probably on the line in communities are working with organ working with uh, Individuals with complex need that have, uh, you know, predicted to have uh, high risk and high future costs. So, I think really focusing on that particular subpopulation, and uh, and we're working with a few organizations around that now. That that some are through through some of the work they're doing are able to show at least preliminarily that for that particular subpopulation, there's some opportunity to to reduce costs there. And as John as John mentioned, because that population. You know, 5% uh, is is costing 50%, just by working on that particular population, you have the opportunity to work on, uh, to to actually affect total cost per capita in the long run. But that's, you know, I think that's some preliminary work, the idea of of focusing on populations, subpopulations, where the cost is high, and then having good models to reduce costs there can can affect uh, the total per capita cost for the entire population. So that's the sort of the avenue that we're working on right now and hope to learn more about.
0: Thank you very much. Um, It it makes me think also it's sort of an interesting thing. We have um, in in this past week the Harvard Business Review published uh, an article about some interesting employer work, and that's on IHI's website. And while it's not couched as the triple aim, um, some very, very interesting uh, work where a coalition came together in terms of uh, health system, uh, employer, et cetera, focusing on population in terms of the employees and some interesting cost reduction uh, information there. So we'll, we'll put a link in there. John, um, I'm going to come back to you, I think, if it's okay, and ask. Uh, there was a question about any examples or what are we finding out about ways that we can reduce disparities improve equity from this work in the Triple Aim? Either what's in the article or anything else you might want to say about that? Sure. Um, this person is asking I mean, asking what, what kinds of population-based interventions uh, might have that impact.
2: Well, I mean, the biggest one of all the years was not in the article. Um, the biggest example that I know of uh, come, came from a, a Primary Care Coalition in England, and um, this work uh, was in Bolton, England, which is just a little bit north of Manchester. In any case, they decided that they wanted to work on decreasing um, health equity around cardiovascular disease, and what they did is the population of about 300,000, or 350 maybe. And they decided they would find them all. They would find everyone at risk above the age of 45. And just as an FYI, people say, oh, it's England, and they're not heterogeneous. They had 51 different languages spoken in this particular community. It wasn't a wealthy community to start with. And the life expectancy difference, and this this exists in the United States, so don't go, oh, well, we're not like this, we're like this. The life expectancy difference between uh, the richest and poorest quintiles was approximately 15 years. So, make a long story short. As a community, they found they went to find them all, everyone who is at risk for cardiovascular mortality. Then get them appropriate treatment, and then measure the impact. In two years, it cut the car, it cut heart attack rate by 50%. In four years, it cut the uh, cardiovascular mortality by 25%. And the gap between the richest and poorest, fell by approximately three years of life expectancy. So at the end of the four-year period of time, instead of having a 15-year life expectancy, it was closer to 11-year life expectancy. That's about the best work I've ever seen in my life.
0: Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Has that been written up anywhere, as far as you know? We can look into it, um, but it'd
2: be interesting to Not think. that, I, not that. Pol- yeah. I've only seen it in PowerPoints. I've never seen okay. it published.
0: All right. Well, we'll see what we can find as well. Thank you for that, uh, John. Uh, suggestion uh, from Karen to all participants to be thinking a little bit about the WIC program uh, and the large WIC workforce to reach across uh, to health plans and health systems. I have no doubt uh, that that probably is happening in different locations Uh And uh, as we talk about this work today, of course, we're mindful of other interesting efforts uh, out there. And um, what I'd like to just suggest to our audience as you see these comments, uh, feel free to um, identify, you know, where your own work might fit in here. I'm curious where people would see themselves on the journey uh, with, with the Triple Aim. What about ACOs um, and uh, kind of as a manifestation of taking this work forward? Trista, maybe I'll come back to you for that. You talked about this opportunity uh, that as we look ahead, that there's some opportunity that has really opened up and um, maybe this isn't entirely fair. We can't quite use money as an excuse or payment um, or that's going to wear thin, uh, maybe sooner than we think. And there are some opportunities now. And are ACOs a good example of that?
5: You know, I think that there is a lot of positive learning going on within the accountable care organizations that are out there. And, of course, we have to remember that there's a lot of diversity within those accountable care organizations. Some are funded through the government, through Medicare. Some are Medicaid. Some are through commercial health plans. um, Some are physician-driven. Some are hospital-driven. But I think, and, and there's some really positives about it. There's some cautions. Um, so in general, accountable care organizations are set up such that you're accountable for both the care and the cost of a defined population of patients. Now, if you'll notice, that gets at two out of three of our aims, right? So it's not all triple aim. But one of the things that I've seen in working very closely with many, many ACOs is it actually heads us towards the triple aim. Because as organizations a health systems start to, instead of being structured around caring for individual patients in a fee-for-service mode Um, and just in an episodic-based approach. They start thinking about that whole population. They start thinking about how do we redesign care for that population. And very quickly, they learn in trying to optimize care for certain groups of patients that their care outcomes are better when there's things outside the healthcare system that happen. So the example of that I would say is you know, take an elderly chronic disease patient um, and we find that maybe that elderly chronic disease patient living in their home maybe has a difficult time um, getting to and from the doctor maybe has transportation issues maybe has difficult time seeing and so when they try to take their medications they maybe make mistakes and have trouble with their medication. They maybe don't have the kinds of social supports they need and maybe don't always eat healthy because they either can't prepare their food or don't have access to healthy food. And so then when, when that patient is in my ACO, then they might actually end up costing me more or getting bad care outcomes because of things that happen in their house and in their home. And that's when even as an ACO provider I start thinking, I want to partner with Meals on Wheels. I want to find ways to better engage that family. I want to find ways to better work with the transportation services in the community to improve the care and cost outcomes for my patient. And when you start thinking that way, it starts pushing you towards the boundaries of also improving the overall health. And then when you, t- when you move from to scale, as Kevin talked about, you know, when we think about that one patient and then doing it for five, then 25, then 125 and 625, if we do that for all the people out there, then we're really driving towards triple aim across that entire pa- patient population and then eventually community.
0: Thanks, Trissa. I appreciate that. Um, The Claudia from, uh, again, the Canadian Foundation for Healthcare Improvement. How do organizations avoid making the AAAM a disease-specific project? Uh, Nian, any thoughts on that? Sure. I think all of us can pipe in on this one because we
3: definitely have gotten that question quite a bit. Um, and we used to, in the beginning, I think we used to advise to shy away from disease-specific populations, but I think because they're of such strategic importance to so many leadership teams, people want to take those on. The key, the key importance is if you're going to d- take on a disease-specific population, so it's not, we're not saying to avoid it, can you identify what all is for you? Can you work on all of the diabetics in your patient population? Can you work on all the diabetics in your community? Um, and really know that you're still going to have to segment from there um, because there are those that are towards the end of their life, those that are in the beginning of their life, those that are um, healthy and commercial insured, those that are under the Medicaid population. So there's still ways that you can segment even a disease-specific population, but really, if you're going to take it on, you need to go to all. Um, John, you and I have had this conversation many times, but um, do you want to add in here?
2: <laughs> you know, I mean, I think you know there were some simple things along the way that we learned And I think the idea of people declaring what full-scale means is really an important one. I know I was in a conversation with someone the other day, and and I could realize that they did not. You know, we were talking about diabetics in a particular community, and I said, do you plan to go to full-scale? And I think that caught them off guard. And I would say at this point in time, um, we need to really be thinking that way. We need to say, I'm in a community. Here's the issue we have. Um, can we go to full scale? Not full scale overnight, um, but full scale over a period of time. And that, that we put our aspiration at that level, that we plan to reach them all. Like the example I used with Bolton, England, where they said, look, we're going to find not every, not every person in our society, but every person who meets this category, infant mortality, or I use the example of cardiovascular risk, we're going to find them all. And that's a big deal. And going to that, I think, is what we need as societies. We're going to make the progress we need. Back to you, Matt.
5: Okay, thank you. Trissa? And just the one other comment I was going to make relative to a disease-specific population is it's a great way to learn, and and we can learn about population management starting in many ways, but with a disease-specific population, many, many people don't only have one disease, uh, and so it's important that as we redesign care, we redesign not just for a disease, even when we start learning that way, but then we redesign for whole patients and, and whole communities. All right. Sounds good. All right. Hey, th-
4: Matt, let me just add one last thing. In please there. do. From a measurement,
0: yes, please from do. A
4: measurement, from a measurement standpoint, I think any population that you select, you got to keep your you know eye on the three dimensions, health, experience, mm-hmm. and cost. So I think everything, I agree totally with what everybody said, but then make sure that you're not just measuring the experience for diabetic patients. That's more a project.
0: Good point. Okay, thank you. Well, Kevin, here's what I'm going to do now, I, and, and I'll, I'll start with you. Kind of some final remarks. We are at kind of wrap-up time for the show. Um, I want to remind people um, that even when we've been talking and the guests have been talking in, in maybe some, you know, uh, Higher-level terms about things. This is all based on very granular work, uh, so none of these ideas didn't spring from from nowhere. And that's one reason we really do want to encourage you uh, to look at the article, look at the examples. Two very nice case studies uh, from the Indian Health Service as well as Bellin uh, that kind of show you maybe sort of if we have the whole orchestra <laughs> all kind of uh, there and assembled and and uh, you know working well together what that looks like. So Kevin, let me start with you, and we'll go around the horn, and I think as part of Ninon's remarks, she can give you a sense of even some ways you can jumpstart your work. Kevin.
4: Okay, just quickly, when, when IHR developed the triple aim, it was based on a theory that the needs of society were not being well served by the healthcare system, in part because the aim was insufficient. So as I hypothesized back in 2007-8, that putting health experience and cost per capita together as the purpose of the health system with spur innovation and new ways of collaborating. So I think it has, and I think we need to continue uh, everyone sort of joining in in this collaboration and learning
0: for the next seven years. All right, that sounds good. Uh, John, some thoughts?
2: Well, I would just say ditto to the uh, well-thought comments that that Kevin just made there. And and I would just say that there's a lot more for us to learn, particularly around data and how to utilize that better Um, new types of workforce, community health workers, and how to utilize that better. And again, I think we should expand our work on health equity. So back to you, Madge. All right. Thank you. Trissa?
5: The one thing I also wanted to point out was, uh, again, so many more organizations are are ready and willing to work together on these aims. And so, health plans um, are our partners in changing care models. Um, many, many partners in the community, and even uh, one of the things from the health system perspective, the community health needs assessment, as a means to start to learn about what's happening in our community, what's needed, and where we can collaborate and cooperate. Uh, lots of ways to break down boundaries and really. Break push the push forward on the triple Okay,
0: thank you very much. All right, and Nina, and we'll throw up this slide here It's some interesting things coming up at IHI. Yeah. Sure. Uh-huh.
3: I guess the last thing I would say before talking yeah. about some of the things that are coming up, I mean, ultimately, the triple aim is about better understanding and meeting the needs of the population, and the triple gives you a strategic framework to, for your leaders to think about, for your frontline groovers to think about, and it gives you a set of balancing measures so you can see how you're doing over time. And, and I think if you're thinking about just one thing you could do by next Tuesday is to think about in your population, could you just talk to five people, five patients that are getting your service or that, that are receiving your services? What, what does your day look like from the moment that you wake up in the morning to the moment that you go to bed? You would be surprised at how much learning you can, you can get from just talking to five individuals. And in the product development world, they say that if you interview ten people, you get just as much, if not more, information as if you surveyed a hundred. And if they can do that in product development, there is no reason why we can't take a page from that and apply it to healthcare. So mm-hmm. talk to five individuals; you get a lot of ideas.
0: All right, that's so a good. So yep.
3: there are some actually very practical ways of getting involved in this Triple Aim work, and know that the Triple Aim sites that are in the article were involved in us in this type of work that's up on the slide. So um, we are entering our second year of the Better Health and Lower Costs for Patients with Complex Needs. Collaborative that came straight. It was a spin-off program right from the Triple Aim Collaborative, so you'll be working on the same stuff they've been um, in the article. Um, so d- they will be accepting teams throughout the summer. Um, if you're interested, definitely email IHI for more information, and that team will get on the phone with you and just understand your needs and see if it's a good fit for you. Then there's three different um, Web and Actions, which are web-based programs um, that offer curriculum and teaching, and then also active testing in between. Um, one is around community health needs. Assessment, knowing that we don't need to tell you anymore that community health needs assessment are a requirement. This this program is really about okay, once it's once you got one, what do you do and actually turn it into something that's not a piece of paper that sits on a desk, but you become a meaningful community partner in the process. Additionally, um, we're another offering of our very successful behavioral health integration web in action is starting in August. Um, people love. Behavioral Health Integration Web in Action, so join up. And then we are taking our core content that you learned today, and there is a virtual program that gets you started. We call it Kickstart the, Kick the Triple Aim, um, and it's called that for a reason. Um, so get involved in that in September. And then our next offering of the Population Management Executive Development Program this is two and a half days of boot camp, fully immersed with your team. Immersed with your team. Learning that population management is a team sport. Um, so really <laughs> taking it on um, at the executive level, that's in November. So lots coming up. We We are very committed at IHI to meeting health systems, healthcare organizations, and communities wherever they're at in the journey, from faith for service to population medicine, from population medicine to population health. So all of our programming in that realm is going to be, it's coming out left and right from
0: IHI, so stay tuned. All right, sounds terrific. Thank you, Ninyan Lewis, Trissa Torres, John Whittington, and Kevin Nolan for your time, all the work that you've been doing on the Triple Aim, the writing of the article, uh, your participation today. I want to thank our wonderful audience for your interest. Uh, Lots of stuff you can follow up on here. If you hadn't seen the article yet, and please uh, tell others you know uh, about the piece, uh, some of the other links, and also about this WIHI. And don't forget, also, we welcome your comments on the survey. Uh, Coming up on WIHI on July 9th, we're going to be talking about Project ECHO out of New Mexico and kind of taking the country and increasingly the world by storm in a very, very interesting way. Believe me, it's not just telemedicine, (laughs) as you're gonna hear from the very eloquent Dr. Sanjeev Arora. A reminder that you can download the chat and any slides we use for our discussion today, Thanks again for filling out the brief survey. And all the materials from today's program will go onto our website by tomorrow. Any questions whatsoever, you can email us at infoihi.org. At so we have a great crew who help us with the program, in addition to our wonderful guests who worked with me on today's program, the people who helped make WIHI possible. Every other week and in between are John Gothier, Matt Morse, Jameson Case, Vicky Minden, Jesse McCall, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, Mario Bello, and Ruth James. And as always, it's my privilege to host a program that's about this kind of spirited learning and improving health and patient care most of all. Thank you, everyone, for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day, everyone.